Gracious Father, we thank you for a beautiful fall morning, uh, for the uh, privilege of being called your children, your sons, your daughters, all because of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, who dwelt among us, who lived a sinless life, shed his blood on Calvary, was buried, and you raised him from the dead on the third day. All to give testimony to the fact of the uh, impact of sin, uh, but also your victorious uh, plan of salvation, uh, triumphing over it. And so, Father, as we uh, join together, as we open up your word, as we consider the second prayer uh, that Paul steps into in chapter 3, may we be mindful of the importance of prayer, the importance of communion with you in this way, uh, pausing to acknowledge who you are, uh, pausing to say, Lord, we need you. Uh, And Father, may you guide us uh, in these truths this morning. May they not just be truths in our minds, but be be truths in our hearts as well. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and open up to Ephesians uh, chapter 3. As you know, we've been uh, slowly walking through, uh, and as Kurt said, as he read verses 14 through 21 this morning, um, don't get too excited. We're not going to get through verse 14 this morning, because it's important for us to make sure that we're taking the time to see what Paul is communicating, but also to what the Word of God is communicating, because each book is not just an individual letter uh, by itself. Uh, It is part of a whole. Uh, The Word of God communicates the same truth from beginning to end, uh, and that truth is uh, Jesus Christ uh, from beginning to end. Uh, And so as we see verse 14 this morning, uh, I'll reread it here, beginning there. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Now this phrase, for this reason, uh, should be familiar to you. Uh, because it's the third time we've heard it. Uh, and if you look back at verse 1 of chapter 3, you see that he said, For this reason I, Paul. Uh, and we, over the last uh, few months, have uh, unpacked everything from verses 1 through 13, which was an aside as Paul uh, was once again uh, reiterating the truths uh, of uh, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And so I think it's fitting that we not just look at chapter 3, verse 14, but we go back to chapter 1, verse 15, because Paul also said there, for this reason. Uh, And that was actually the beginning of his first prayer that we looked at many months ago. Uh, And it's important for us to see because this is all building upon itself. This is all part of this letter that he wrote to the saints in Ephesus. Uh, and so we, we don't want to just you know, pull this verse out and let it be a standalone verse all by itself. Uh, we want to see that Paul has been building, has been climaxing, and has been recentering all these saints, all these believers, many of whom were being persecuted for their faith because they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and found themselves in need of knowing who they are in Christ, to know the riches of Christ. Uh, to know the salvation of Jesus Christ. Uh, And so it's important for us as well to see this because his first prayer 
uh, we'll see, as we're reminded, is to know God, to know God's power. And then as we're going to see here in chapter 3, verses 14 and following, it's actually going to be that power that he prayed for back in chapter 1 working its way out in the Christian's life. It's not meant for it just to be head knowledge that God is almighty, that God is almighty in power, but to see that that almighty power is what works in and through every believer, through the Holy Spirit. So let's take a a quick journey as we recall uh, these truths. And and don't worry, I'm not going to read every verse, um, but I'm going to give you a summation statement so you got to pay close attention because it is jam-packed with goodness. So verse 15, chapter 1 says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. See, what Paul is communicating here is he looks back in the verses prior in chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, is for them to realize the glorious reality that God not only chose them, but predestined them, adopted them, redeemed them, forgave them, lavished his grace upon them, gave them spiritual knowledge, gave them practical knowledge, gave them an inheritance, and sealed them with the promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee, and all to the praise of his glorious grace forever and ever. Amen. See, that is what Paul is rehearsing. This is what Paul is personalizing, because what can happen is is Paul realizes that we live life. God knows that we live life, and what happens is as life pulls us and stretches us and, you know, spreads us as if it's too much, uh, well, so, so little butter over a whole lot of toast, to give you an idea. And it seems like we're spread so thin and stretched almost to the point of breaking. And what happens is, is we need to be recentered. We need to realize who we are. We cannot let the things of this world tell us who we are. We need to have the Word of God inform us who we are. And so Paul, as he rehearses all those glorious realities, all those for this reason, he's praying back in chapter 1. And if you look at verse 17 of chapter 1, he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And so here he goes into, uh, in his first prayer, for them to know the hope to which they were called, to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward every believer, not just select believers, not just a partial empowerment, but an empowerment because the Holy Spirit of God indwells us as the one, as he says, is the guarantee who is the seal until the day of redemption. To know that immeasurable greatness of power, not just up here, but to see it lived out as it is evidenced in Christ being raised from the dead. And we talk about that, and I don't think we really fully understand that. Think about the magnitude of God the Father raising Jesus Christ from the dead. There is no human being on this planet that would not love the power of being able to raise someone from the dead, particularly a loved one. Someone that was special to them. But see, the thing is, that's not a power that man has. Because man is not the one who sustains life, supplies life. It is God Almighty. 
And so as we look at God's power, we first look at Christ being raised from the dead because that is the hope that we have, that one day we will be too raised. We're right now raised to walk in newness of life as those who have been redeemed, but there's a day coming where these frail earthly bodies that are limited because they're finite will be exchanged for a glorious body fit for eternity. But that power is also evidence in Christ being seated at the right hand of God to take his honorable place because he did everything in obedience to the will of God. There was no aspect of what Jesus did that made Jesus feel as though this was not worth it. When you look at what Christ did in taking on flesh, everything he did was for the purpose of fulfilling the will of the Father to the glory of God, so that you and I can experience forgiveness, salvation, to be able to walk and to talk with God once again, no longer hindered by sin. And that day is coming. Right now, we still struggle with sin, but we still, as we live this life, have the power of the Holy Spirit living within us so that we can commune with God in prayer, just like Paul is doing. We see it evidenced in everything being made subject to Christ, Christ being the head over and the fullness of the church, which over the centuries man has, you know, deviated from, distorted, tainted, because man wants to be the head of everything. He likes the power. And so we even look through history, we even look today where men are usurping Christ being head over and the fullness of the church. Because it's not about Christ anymore. It's about what will entertain, what will keep, what will uh, bring people in, not take into consideration their need of salvation, their need of forgiveness of sins, that they are coming into the presence of Almighty God. And so Paul prays this, you know, in chapter 1, for them to know the power of God and see it evidenced in all those ways. And then what we see is Paul transitioning as he, you know, reiterates some more truths as he talks about uh, the mystery uh, that has been hidden for ages. So if you look at chapter 3, verse 14, what Paul does is he, he steps into another prayer. This is prayer number two. This is a very short amount of time in this letter. And so what, why is he praying once again? Because he realizes that we need God's power to see these things, to embrace these things, to live these things out. Because we can't do it on our own. We cannot save ourselves. And we cannot even live the life that God has called us to live apart from God's power in us. And so he, he appeals to this in, in his second prayer, as he says in verse 14 of chapter 3, for this reason... Again, looking back into chapter 2, looking back into that aside that we just got done finishing in verses 1 through 13, for this reason, that those who were dead in their trespasses and sins, having been made alive in Christ, are reborn in Him for good works, no longer strangers or aliens, but fellow heirs, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God." being built together in Christ and learning about his unsearchable riches, who gives us boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. 
so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may be made known. See, that's everything that he just got done reviewing. And this is how he's beginning, saying, for this reason, because of everything I just said, this is what we're going to step into this second prayer, because I want you not only to know up here the power of Almighty God, I want you to see the, the power of Almighty God working in and through you, so that you know that as we sign this morning, you are never alone. Yes, we feel lonely from time to time, and awfully that loneliness is because of the circumstances of life, the things that we choose to focus upon, but we're never alone. Because Almighty God indwells us. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So prayer number two in this short letter. And I want you to think for a moment. You know, we don't, we don't get mail anymore very much where we have letters. And I can remember writing letters to Michelle when we were dating. And taking the time to write things that, you know, were coming from my heart. Things that I meant because I de desired for her to, to be my wife. You know, but when we get a letter, and you know, she would send letters back to me, you know what I would do? is I wouldn't just read that letter once. I'd read that letter over and over again. Because I, and, and I would listen at, you know, and read it as if Michelle was actually saying those words right there with me. And see, that's how it should be when we read the Word of God. It shouldn't be just a cursory reading. We should want to read it over and over and over again. Because these truths are what transform us, not only for eternity, but also for everyday living. And that's what Paul wants his readers to understand. Because they're being persecuted for their faith. They're living in a pagan culture. They're living in a culture that hates God. They're living in a culture that thinks that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of gods out there. That there are many ways to God, that you just need to try and do your very best and everything will hopefully, you know, balance out in the end. See, nothing's changed. What was then in Paul's day is also what we see today uh, in our own world. And so Paul, as he's doing this, is again bringing them back to the very throne room of God, bringing them back to prayer, because he wants them to see that, you know what, I'm not doing this in and of myself. Matter of fact, I'm bringing you to God, and I'm letting God take these truths and, you know, plant them deep within your heart. If you remember back to uh, the Sermon on the Mount, I know that might be a stretch for some. Uh, hopefully, you know, you remember some of it. But you remember, I took the time when we were going through the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, what I actually said was the disciples' prayer, because Jesus never prayed that prayer. Uh, it was a model for us so that we would know how to pray. You remember that I told you that there is a twofold posture in prayer. And one is actually, you know, a prepared heart. Um, if you remember that uh, in Matthew chapter 6, a heart that is in submission to the will of God. See, when we come to God, it's not just the long laundry list of what we would like God to do or we desire for God to do. That's not informed by the Word of God. See, because this book is what should inform us as to what we should pray for. You know, so that the desires of our heart are actually the desires of God's heart. That what we are praying is, God, your will be done. That we are submitting to your will even if the rest of the world is not. 
even if they don't acknowledge that you exist, because we belong to God now. We are fellow heirs, members of the household of God. In Psalm 51, 17, it says that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. See, the reason why that heart is broken or contrite is because that heart, for the first time, sees itself in relation to the God of all. We're sorrowful over what we've done to transgress God's law. So much to the point that we, we agree with God in repentance that we were wrong. We're sorry for it. And not just a, I'm sorry, but a deep sorrow. Because we know that the reason why Christ hung on that cross, why his perfect blood was shed was because of our transgression of God's law. A sorrowful, remorseful heart because of improper or objectionable behavior or actions. That's what contrite means. And we've all done that. Improper behavior, saying things we should not say, thinking things we should not think, hurting others in anger, in envy, creating strife, doing all those things that are natural to the flesh. But see, this heart is a heart that is in submission to the will of God, that sees that this is the right place to be, this place of humility, this place of reverence for God. Because by His almighty power, He has taken that which is dead spiritually and made it alive in Christ. See, that twofold posture was one of heart, you know, Deep down in, who, you know, in relation to who we are, an obedience, a bowing of the heart, a bowing of the will in submission to the will of God. But you remember I also talked about the posture of the body. We looked at a few different examples, and the reason why I bring these back to light today is because we have an example right here in our text of a posture of the body, but what I would also put forth is a posture of the heart. Because it says, for this reason I bow my knees. Well, if you remember, there was the example of Christ in John 17, uh, where he was looking heavenward. He lifted his eyes to heaven, which gives us a, a beautiful picture of hope, of the Son trusting the Father, even to the point of death on a cross. We had the example of the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, where as he realized his sinfulness, he actually beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So we see this body posture of repentance as he beat his chest. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, we took a look at the lifting up of holy hands, where it says, I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Something we just went over in the men's Bible study a couple weeks ago. For us to realize that, that those holy hands can be that which is a lifting of the hands in a physical aspect, but also a lifting of the hands which it says holy is having that broken and contrite heart before God. Because it's something that has been internalized, not just something that is outward. It's inward as well. 
King David in 2 Samuel 7 was actually sitting before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And that sitting there with the Lord is, shows a, a sign of friendship, a, a deepness in a relationship where David is able to sit comfortably in the, the arms of the, the God he loves. And then also in Isaiah chapter 38, we took a look at Hezekiah when he became sick to the point of death. Uh, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. So right there on his sickbed, uh, we see helplessness because the physical body is ailing, the physical body is failing. But there's still an aspect in which, you know, even lying on our sickbed, we can posture with our bodies, but also with our hearts before God. And I'd say that healthily, as believers in Jesus Christ, it should be first the heart, followed by or accompanied by the posture of the body. Because it tells us in the scripture, out of the mouth of the, uh, or out of the, uh, the depths of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, out of the depths of our heart should be where our prayers come. In, in prayers of confession, prayers of praise before God. And you'll notice here in our text today that in Ephesians 3.14, Paul says, For this reason, all those things I mentioned just a few moments ago, looking back to chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, he says, For this reason, I bow my knees. What reason is that? that I was once dead in my trespasses and sins and have been made alive in Christ, that I am now reborn in him for good works, that I am now no longer a stranger or alien, but a fellow citizen with the saints and a member of the household of God that is being built together in Christ and learning about Christ's unsearchable riches, which gives me a boldness and access with confidence through faith, not in myself, but in my Savior, Jesus Christ. So that through the church, which I am part of, the manifold wisdom of God may be made known to the nations. See, that's what Paul is praying. And you'll notice it's not about Paul. His prayer is, has everything to do with what Christ has done. And see, that's how our prayer should be, in light of what Christ has done doing so in submission to the will of God, which means that no matter what may happen to me, no matter what may happen to this body, no matter what set of circumstances I may find myself in, I'm bowing the knees of my heart as well as the knees of my physical body in humility, in worship of God. And as we take a look at Scripture, bowing and kneeling have a direct connection with worship of God. It's a reverence. It's a sign of humility. Not coming into God's throne room as proud and, well, God, you are blessed for me to be here because that's not the case. If anything, it's the complete opposite. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of being here because of your Son, Jesus Christ. Again, it's a matter of focus. It's a matter of not only a head knowledge, but a heart knowledge. There's been a transformation that has taken place. 
It reminded me of Psalm 95, 6, which says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. And see, that should be the, the attitude of our hearts, the attitude of our minds. And you'll notice there's three phrases there. Let us worship, bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. These are actually three separate Hebrew words. And the interesting thing is, I want to share with you, because you'll begin to understand, you know, it could have been easily said, this, O come, bow down before the Lord, our Maker. But see, the repetition is there for a purpose. And, you know, in, in a Hebrew mindset, you know, having three different words that have three different aspects or attitudes to give us a fullness of the magnitude of what we should do each and every day in coming and worshiping and giving reverence to and being humble before the Lord, our Maker. That first phrase, let us worship, is a verb meaning to bow down, to prostrate oneself, to crouch, to fall down, to humbly beseech, to do reverence, to worship. The primary meaning of this word is to bow down. Well, wait, the next phrase says bow down. But see, again, it's given us a full picture, a full aspect of the fact that it's saying, oh, come, bow down, bow down, bow down. To remember who God is. To not become flippant or become so callous that we just take for granted who we are in Christ Jesus or we allow the culture, or we allow our lives to be the driving force in everything that we do, forgetting who God is. See, Paul is reeling them back in. He's helping these young believers who have trusted in Christ to know who they are in Christ up here, but also down here. So that it affects every aspect of their lives. It's the same word in Psalm 66. Uh, starting in verse 1, it says, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Give to Him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you. That's the same Hebrew word. And sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in His deeds toward the children of man. Do you think that way? Is that what is on your mind and your heart apart from gathering together on Sunday morning? It says all the earth worships you. The creation knows to worship, to bow down before the creator You remember, it says scripturally that if, you know, we do not give God the glory and the praise and the honor, the stones will. See, the creation knows the creator. And we, as those who have been created in the image of God, who have an eternal soul, should know and be willing to do that very thing even that much more. All the earth bows down, prostrates itself, crouches, falls down, humbly beseeches, gives reverence to and worships the creator of all. And that's what we should be doing each and every day. That second word, it says, and bow down. Guess what? 
The verb means bow. The third phrase, let us kneel, is a verb meaning to bless, kneel, salute, or greet. And it's the verb that they derive uh, from the noun knee, like in this knee here. So you're getting the picture that we have a threefold thing here that is saying that we should be bowing down, we should be kneeling, we should be coming in with reverence before the presence of Almighty God, our Maker, the one who is the creator of heaven and earth the one to whom everyone must give an account because there is a day appointed for each one of us and then there's judgment. See, Paul is saying, for this reason I bow my knees because my eyes now see the glory of Almighty God. It's no longer about keeping the pharisaical laws It's no longer about me being my very best. It's not about me. It's about God Almighty. It's about Jesus Christ, God's Son, and what He did to take that which was dead and make it alive spiritually. So the question is, how should this inform our lives today? Because I want this to be very practical. And you may not be in the the nature to kneel down you know, with your physical body in prayer. But for certain, after today, you should realize that you should be kneeling in your heart before the maker, the Lord, our God. So three things I'm going to give to you. We're done in Ephesians, so I want you to turn back to the Old Testament book of Daniel. Because there's two examples that are highlighted here. Because there's three things that you should see that believers should do in kneeling before the Lord, our Maker. First is believers kneel in submission to the will of God. Because God's will is the very best there is. It's the only one really that counts. Because He is the Creator and we are the creation. Daniel chapter 3. You're familiar with this. And unfortunately, you probably have some things that take you extra biblical if you've ever watched uh, Veggie Tales to remember the Rack Shack and Benny. But we're going to go to the biblical text because that's where our example comes from. Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 16. And you'll know that Nebuchadnezzar built this monstrosity of a golden statue of himself for people to worship. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Or matter. That takes some boldness. These three young guys say, you know what? Yep, you may be king, but we will have a king who is the creator of all things. So we don't even need to answer you in this matter, but guess what? We will anyway. He says in verse 17, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18, notice the words, But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They drew the line in the sand and said, No, this is not what we're going to do because you are not king over all the earth. 
We are not going to worship a graven image. We are going to worship the one true God. So we don't have to answer you on this matter because we answer to God alone. And we're not going to do something that God tells us not to do in his law. We're going to obey God in his law. And you'll notice here, and this is where the believers kneel in submission to the will of God, you'll notice it says, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. They had the faith and the belief to know that God would deliver them from the very thing that would take their lives. But notice the balance here in verse 18. But if not. See, that is a heart. That is a person, an individual resting in the arms of Almighty God. God can deliver us because He is Almighty God. He can take us out of this if that is His desire, if that is His will for us to show His power in a mighty way. But if not, know this, we are not going to compromise. We are not going to bow down to this statue. We are still going to bow down to our Maker, our God, the one whom we love, the one whom we believe in, even if it means our fiery death. See, that's what a believer should have. Have that confidence to know that no matter what happens, no matter what man can do to this frail, earthly shell, that God is going to do that which is good. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could see that. And if that good meant the, you know, the consuming of their bodies in that fiery furnace which is the guards took them up there. The guards even died because of how hot it was. So they knew it was imminent. They knew that they may be stepping over that threshold into eternity itself. But their heart's desire, their heart's love, their humility, their obedience to God, no matter what, they knelt internally and outwardly before God and God alone. Second, believers kneel in thankfulness regularly. And this takes us actually to Daniel chapter 6, so flip a couple pages forward. And Daniel, also a brave young man, after the document had been signed by the king that no one should pray to anyone other than the king himself, it says in verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. So he wasn't hiding behind anything. The windows were open and he's going to the very place where he prays. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Those words are there for a reason. See, this was the character and what characterized Daniel's life. Is taking the time with God each and every day, multiple times a day. And just because an edict came down that called him to do something contrary to God's law, he stood firm as he kneeled down. In his heart, as well as in his body. And you'll notice it says, 
gave thanks before his God. See, there's a relationship there. Daniel loved God, and God loved Daniel. And he wasn't going to let the culture dictate to him what the truth was. Instead, he relied on God and God alone, bowing and kneeling, giving God the worship and the reverence in humility before him because a believer kneels in thankfulness regularly. And finally, he takes us to the book of Acts chapter 7. Final example is a New Testament one, so that you don't think that this is just something that Old Testament saints did. Because believers kneel in life or death. Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 55. This is the account of Stephen after he called out the religious leaders. It says, but he, in verse 55, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen, a New Testament saint, who challenged the religious leaders and their religiosity of worshiping their laws and their ways more than worshiping the one true God and maker. Stephen was not going to compromise, and if that even meant his death, so be it. Stephen is an example to us that believers kneel in life or death, because even at that moment as he's being stoned, as he falls to his knees, and I would even say that in submission to the will of God, as we see that. Stephen is not doing something out of character because he knows God. He has a relationship with God. He is walking with God because God is giving him the grace at this moment to let the very people that he is calling out to repent to take his life. So what does he do? He kneels down, not before the crowd. He's kneeling down before his maker. Because you notice it says, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. A heavenward focus. Now we may not have the heavens open like it did for Stephen, but we have the word of God and we know that we have the Spirit of God indwelling us each and every day. So we can lift our gaze to heaven. We can lift our gaze toward our maker. Lifting our gaze while we bow our pride, while we bow all the things that would keep us from giving God the honor and the glory that he is due. Believers kneel in submission to the will of God. Believers kneel in thankfulness regularly. Believers kneel in life or death. I'd like to close by 
reading the lyrics to a song. And I'm sorry, Terry, I didn't let you know that I was going to use a song today, but I'm not sure we've ever sung this one, but the lyrics are beautiful. Uh, it's a song by Keith and Kristen Getty. It's called Before You I Kneel. So in light of everything that we've talked about today, in light of kneeling not only in our heart, but even taking the time to kneel in our bodily posture to show that humility, to show that honor, that reverence to God. It says, Before you I kneel, my master and maker, to offer the work of my hands. For this is the day you've given your servant. I will rejoice and be glad. For the strength I have to live and breathe, for each skill your grace has given me. For the needs and opportunities that will glorify your great name. Before you, I kneel and ask for your goodness to cover the work of my hands, for patience and peace to shape all my labor, your grace for thorns in my path. Flow within me like a living stream, wear away the stones of pride and greed, till your ways are dwelling deep in me and a harvest of life is grown. Before you, we kneel, our master and maker, establish the work of our hands and order our steps to seek first your kingdom in every small and great task. May we live the gospel of your grace, serve your purpose in fleeting or in our fleeting days, then our lives will bring eternal praise and all glory to your name. Let's bow for a closing word of prayer. Gracious Father, Lord, we thank you for the example of Stephen, of Daniel, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, of the Apostle Paul. Thank you that we have access into the very throne room with you through the power of the Spirit that indwells us to commune with you in prayer. Lord, I pray for each one of my brothers and sisters in this room this morning. I ask that you would give them the ability, give them the perseverance to take time to fix their gaze upon you, to draw their gaze heavenward, not just when we gather together for this short time on a Sunday morning, but when they least expect it. Maybe to show your power and your grace and your knowledge and your wisdom somewhere in their lives where they've not seen it yet. So that all they can do is stand back and say, thank you, God. May you help each one of us kneel in submission to your will each and every day. May we kneel regularly. And may we kneel in this life and even in the death that will come. Realizing that death is a doorway into the very presence of you, Heavenly Father. To join you and your Son who is seated at the right hand of the throne to be in that glorious place, that sinless place. Sinless because of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because you are holy, 
and good and right and perfect. And now we have been qualified because of your son through faith and trust in him and him alone, not because of works so that we do not boast or think that we're there because of what we have done. But instead, may we see the reason we're there is because of what your son has done, what he has accomplished, what only he could accomplish. So may we not only know in our minds your almighty power, but may we see your almighty power working in and through us as we kneel before you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.